This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media. Randall Carlyle was an anchor that moved along life with us for decades here in Salt Lake City. Now he has a whole new career. It's fascinating. The interesting Randall Carlyle inside Salt Lake with Jim DeBacchus coming up. A legend in Utah broadcasting, Randall Carlyle, anchor person, extraordinaire. There's something different about you, Randall, and I got to say, I think your generation of news people, particularly in television. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. We, all right, there we go. We'll get you back to the home, Randall. It's all right here. Look, you are a news junkie. Yes. I mean... You get a little twitchy when you're when you haven't looked at the feed about what's going on, and um, I don't find the journalists of today quite that newsy. They see it more of an entertainment job than perhaps this this desire to know the details about public policy. Yeah, I agree with you, and I'm not sure why. Uh, I mean, I have a thirst, even though I'm not working in news anymore. Before I go to work at Odyssey House, which has nothing to do with news, uh, I read through both newspapers. I, uh, I look at all the four TV stations' websites and call up quite a few stories. And when I'm on vacation, I do the same thing. I was in San Diego recently, and thank goodness for Wi-Fi. You can see everything that's happening back in town. Why do I need to know this? I don't know. I have this thirst for that, and I've always had that thirst. I want to know more. I want to know why. Why is Jim DeBacchus running? What is Jim DeBacchus doing now? I want to know these things. Well, you mean my involvement in marathoning? I'm running because uh, okay, I guess not. That, that's not where you're going. No, I. I but but I'll tell you another uh, a television reporter who's a nice enough person. The other day, it became obvious during our discussion that this person didn't know the difference between a county council person and a city council person, and. I mean, I just find so often, and maybe they're maybe they're called on to cover too many dog stories, but they just don't seem to have that Rod Decker. I really know what's going on, and I want to know what's going on. And Rich Pyatt was another good one, and Chris Van Oker. You've got, um, you know, I mean, there's a few uh, left around. The problem is, first of all, they don't pay like they used to. You mean in actual dollars less now than? Oh, sure, sure. What do you What do you think Dick Norris was making in the heyday? In his heyday, $350,000. Wow. wow. With a lot of perks. And what do you think anchors make now? A hundred, hundred and twenty. And and that would have been twenty years ago. So the buying powers would oh, be. Sure. I mean. And what? In fairness to the TV stations, they're not pulling in dough like they used to. They don't. The ten o'clock audiences for all four stations in Utah have decreased by fifty percent in the last ten years. So, if you're trying to sell time to an advertiser, you can't charge as much as you were ten years ago. And where do the people go? What do you mean? What? What? what, No, I mean. Does that mean that, uh, yeah, what happened to that other 50% that don't watch news anymore? Look it up on the internet and whatever 
whatever story interests them, they look at and then they feel like they know what they want to know. Is there, are there ramifications for a world where the lead story gets cat videos? Well, I, I believe the marketplace determines viewership, okay? And if you're presenting something, I, I, the big difference now, you know, you asked that first question. When I got into broadcasting, we as journalists looked at each newscast and said, what do people need to know? And we picked what we thought were the most important stories. Broadcasting changed over the years with consultants and everyone else to what do people want to know. And so newscasts are shaped uh, in terms of what people want to know, not what they maybe need to know. Uh, and, that's, and that's frightening. I mean, if people want to know that there are <laughs> stray cats or whatever story you're talking about or a pig that kisses somebody, if, if that's what they want to know, then that's what TV stations are going to give them. I think it's been catastrophic for democracy. I agree. People are not, and, and you know, and, and things like uh, Fox News is catastrophic to democracy, in my opinion, because Fox News was brilliant. They said, hey, there's this right-wing conservative element to society in America, and if we appeal to that, we're going to have huge numbers, and they do, and they're extremely successful. But what you're seeing is a one-sided view of all the issues that are raised in society today. What do you say to people who would argue back, well, that's because you're kind of a lefty, and you always had it your way. That is, the New York Times and CBS News were already way over there on the left, and the fact that you've got somebody else on the other side is is just, uh, and you decry that, is just evidence that your side doesn't have a monopoly on, quote, news. Well, I would say that if we didn't, if, if we hadn't had that liberal-leaning view over the decades, we wouldn't have seen an end to the Vietnam War, we wouldn't have seen Richard Nixon leaving office. Uh, it seems to me that you have to be somewhat liberal and, and aggressive to get to the real truth on a lot of issues. Uh, you know, I, I would defend local news as being as fair as it can be. I mean, if I went out and did a story on, oh, say, censoring cosmopolitan magazines in grocery store shelves, I would talk to one side who said that's ridiculous, and just because you see scantily clad women, it's not going to do anything. But I would also go and talk to Gail Ruzica and ask for her opinion. So, uh, you know, I always thought it was my job to present both sides of the issue. It doesn't matter what I think, because my views never never came out on, on when I was on the news, because... We weren't supposed to, and sure, I have my own point of view as to who I like in an election or what point of view I have about things like abortion or things like that, but, but that never came out. And whenever I did a story, I fairly represented both sides. You were, you were back in the era, you were working professionally when the FCC had the opinion that local ownership mattered. And that if somebody owned a station, be it a radio or television station, that uh, they were living in that community, they might take a, 
broader interest in using their public airwaves in trying to do something because constructive and good. Yeah, that's not the philosophy. Right. Well, that changed when the FCC said, we don't care, and it virtually deregulated so that now there are single owners with many, 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 many hundreds many, of... Many. Um, so how has that affected? When you had George Hatch, who yeah. owned an empire, and you had Channel 4 that was usually owned outside of the state, but, right. um, but they needed to... You had... KSL, owned by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. You, you had these people with deep roots in the community. That's certainly not true anymore. You saw that evolution come along. Was that a big factor? What, what got us to where we are? What got us to where we are is the economy. Uh, I think the FCC was persuaded. I think it started with radio. And I, I saw that with when Clear Channel started buying up hundreds of radio stations all over the country, uh, and they used the argument that they were failing economically, uh, and they needed to do that to survive. That's when it started to change. It started with radio stations, and then it then it became TV stations. And uh, the last station I worked uh, for was owned by a company called NextStar, and they own 120 or 130. TV stations, and and it's a big change from the George Hatch days at KUTV back in the 80s. When one man owned the television station. I mean, when we, when we wanted to do something, we'd walk upstairs uh, to George's office and say, George, we want to send a crew to Timbuktu because this is an important story, and George would either say yes or no. Speaking of Mr. Hatch, he really was one of the great pioneers, at least in Utah television. He was a visionary. Uh, and, and what was so great about working at Channel 2 back then is they were in heated competition with Channel 5. And obviously Channel 5 had unlimited resources because of the church influence and the church money. And so for Channel 2 to compete... Uh, George had to spend that kind of money as well, which, much to his dismay, I'm sure. But if Channel 5 got a helicopter, we'd go, George, we need a helicopter. He'd say, okay, buy one. <laughs> you know, those are the good old days. But in, in, you know, comparing those times to now, you could be an idiot and own a TV station back then because there were only three TV stations. That was before Fox. That was before cable. And it didn't matter... The advertising dollar, even if you had a small slice of the pie, it, it, it amounted to a lot of money. And, it, and so TV stations were making tons of money back then. And they're just not now. No, they're not. Can America, are you optimistic about the country? Do you think we can get through all of this? I would like to think there are people who want to know the truth from both sides. It, it scares me a little that... Uh, that, that people like that networks like Fox are doing so well uh, because you're just you're, you're feeding people what they want to hear and and I'm sure liberal side of things wants to do the same thing they just haven't done as successfully as Fox has and I and it's dividing the country and, and I, I I'm sure America will survive but I don't like the way it's going right now you're sure. Why? I mean, can't you make the argument that, look, it's just going to get more and more divided? Congress will get more and more divided, and eventually, like all powers, it will just wind away. I 
wealthy friend who told me, see, I don't think it's as much uh, the political structure that could cause the destruction of America. I think it's the disparity between the haves and the have-nots. And as you well know, you're an expert on, on Russia. Uh, that's what happened back then. Uh, it's happened in so many societies, and the downfall of the society wasn't necessarily the political structure, but the economic structure. And I, this rich friend that I had gave tons of money to charitable and worthwhile causes. And I said, why do you do this? And he said, because I want to keep, I want to hang on to a lot of the money I have, and I don't want the people that I'm helping out to have some insurrection that will take over the things that have made me wealthy. Now, that's not a very altruistic view, but by the same token, I think it's realistic that we need to bridge the gap between the billionaires now, it used to be millionaires, the billionaires now, and the people who don't have anything. And, it, and, and I, that gap is getting wider, and that's what scares me about America, not so much the political structure. So you, um, you know, at a, at a moment when you could have gone off to retirement and know you're still young and vigorous and you know doing just fine you decided to embark on an entirely different career unlike anything you'd ever done i, I went to become director of media and community relations at odyssey which is the largest uh, behavioral health treatment center in utah does that mean like a place where addictions are treated yes yes exactly but you know when you talk about treating addiction, you're also talking about the root causes of why people are addicted. And it's not, obviously, if you're a heroin addict, heroin is, is the problem. But there's a reason why you started doing heroin in the first place. And so a reputable treatment center will try to deal with the root cause as well as, uh, as, well as the, the drug that people are dealing with. The reason I went there, to, since you asked, is I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been, I was a functional alcoholic for decades, never went on the air drunk, but I went home every night and drank to oblivion. Uh, and I managed a successful professional career, had a terrible personal career, and went through four lives. Um, but anyway, I've been in recovery for seven years, and, it re and I really have a strong feeling for it, and I think I can, I think I can use my story to offer people hope who are in the depths of addiction at the time, be it alcohol or drugs. And so I, Odyssey offered me this job, uh, and I jumped at it and quit instantly. Uh, Channel 4, I asked to be let out of my contract. They let me, uh, and I went to work at Odyssey. And I've, I've never been happier. After seven years of sobriety, do you ever walk in or buy a bar or get a smell, or do you ever think, well, okay, I... I, I need one or have something happen? I mean, is it, is it still a temptation? Sure, it's a temptation. My last relapse seven years ago, I said to myself, well, I, can, I think I was sitting at Gracie's, and I said, I could probably have one beer or two beers. Well, anybody who understands alcoholism knows that you can't do that. And so I had one or two beers after having been sober for nine months, and I was off to the races. And so... I replay that tape every time something, if I am, if I am somewhere where people are drinking a lot or partying and, and I have the desire to do it, I replay that tape and say, I know what's going to happen yeah. if I do this and I don't want that to happen. Could somebody say, Randall, 
what the hell were you doing in Gracie's? You know, I mean, it's it, you know that, that alcohol is going to be there and well, the environment, or how do you? Alcohol is pervasive in society. You can't, you know. Have you been to Orem? Well, okay, okay, all right. There was a reason I avoided that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, but you, you, can't, you can't avoid it. You walk by beer in a grocery store. I mean, I, I bought bottles of wine for friends uh, for birthday gifts or Christmas or whatever, and and I, I feel guilty when I walk into a state liquor store. Now. Well, we all every see me? everybody feels guilty walking in there because of the prison uh, you know decor they have. But uh, you know, <laughs> what if somebody who goes to one of the AA meetings I go to? sees me walking into a store, the first reaction would be, Randall relapsed. Yeah. Well, let's give him a call. Yeah, then they're there. So let's go back up to 50,000 feet because you, as well as anybody that I know, has a pulse on where we are in addiction. We're, it, it's not steady, you know, we, we are definitely going through something the last 10 years. S people that might not have been predicted to be addicted to heroin and to meta-amphetamines uh, and uh, are, are there now. Can you, can you talk about that? What did, what's different now? Is this the loss of jobs in, in the... Most of the state, other than the Wasatch Front here, is there is there some unifying reason why um, this is this is a greater temptation now, or that more people are involved? People, I think, initially set out to drink or drug to numb themselves to certain feelings, and if you just look at the fact, if I knew the cause of addiction. I, I'd be a billionaire and I'd be lecturing everywhere and writing books. Um, the, if, if you look at the facts right now for the people who, first of all, there's an element of people who were overprescribed opioid pain pills. And then doctors started pulling back on the script and the people were, were addicted to them. And so they, people like Alema Harrington, I mean, that, that was his, he got injured playing football, got prescribed opioids. Uh, then the doc said, well, we get, you're addicted to them, we're going to pull back. And he went down to uh, Pioneer Park and started buying heroin. There's that group of people. But I also think there's a group of people, be they drinkers or druggers, uh, that, that were, are trying to numb their circumstances. And you'll find that like, like one of the worst places in the world, in, in the state right now, uh, for addiction is Carbon County. And the unemployment rate down there is skyrocketing because of the mines closing and everything else. And so there's a lot of people sitting around, uh, you know, without jobs, without a hope in the future, and they're numbing themselves. Um, uh, and, you know, and so, uh, there's other, it's not just, I, I don't think people understand that people don't, nobody goes out and says, hey, I'm going to shoot up heroin because it might be fun. Now, people, drinkers, on the other hand, are exposed to booze from a very young age and may say, hey, I like the feeling when I get, when I get drunk or socially or whatever. But, but a lot of people, you know, the people down on Rio Grande, for instance, uh, many of them can't get out of Rio Grande, can't get out of the poverty, and they're exposed to drugs like that every day. And so it's sort of like, well, why not? It eases my pain. 
Uh, it eases my emotional pain to be high all the time. No, is is this a true statement? No one ever had their first heroin experience with a needle in a place like Pioneer Park without ever having gone to any other step. In other words, is somebody just driving down the street and they've, you know, they, they've never tried drugs and they've never been involved and they go, oh, that looks interesting. I'm going to go try that. And then they shoot heroin. I mean, it's hard to generalize about that. I doubt that there are many people like that, but I, but I would suggest that there could be people who find themselves homeless down there and the only people they hang around with are the other homeless people down there, right. some of whom are heroin addicts. And they'll say, hey, this is going to take your pain away. Give it a try. In the time we have left, Medicaid expansion should bring hundreds of millions of dollars to Utah. And a lot of that money could go, anyway, to addiction uh, to help. So are we geared up for that? Um, I I have judges say that the chief of the drug court told me uh, we, we... we need more facilities. We need more money first, assuming we get the money. How long does it take to get a facility up and working and get trained staff? And how, how many, how, how long will it take to get these gears moving? Two things we need. Uh, our problem right now, and, and I think I can speak for most treatment facilities, is we can't find qualified workers. Social workers are in such high demand right now, licensed clinical social workers. Uh, and, and we're, Odyssey is a nonprofit, and obviously our wage scale, we try to be competitive with the for profits, but we can't pay as much. And so if we have somebody who gets one or two years under the belt, and somebody like the CERC down in Utah County, uh, which is a high end for profit place, offers people another five or 10,000 more a year going to go because they want to better their situation. So first of all, I mean, we could open facilities if we could find buildings, uh, but we can't find workers right now, uh, employees, qualified staff. So everybody is fighting each other for qualified staff. Of Everybody, one final question here, and, and take Odyssey House or a similar situation. If 100 people enter the door... How many are going to come out of the program? And then in five years, how many of them will not have fallen? I can tell you how many will complete the program. That's about, right now our numbers are about 84%. And that's really high. The highest in, only the nonprofits are monitored for completion rates. Five years from now, with somebody who completed our program, I have no idea. I mean, we try to follow up. I mean, it'd be wonderful to be able to, to put in our marketing brochure that, okay, we have an 85% completion rate and 70% of them stay clean for five years. But the problem with following up with people, the only way you can do it is on email and, and, and method like that. And, and the only people who are going to, in other words, if somebody relapsed and they're in the throes of addiction again, they're not going to send back and say, I screwed up and I relapsed. Mm-hmm. But the people who are successful are going to return those emails. Mm-hmm. We could, because if, if, we do send out follow-ups, we could say that it's something like 90-some percent of everybody who replies to our follow-up 
is still sober and is in recovery, but that's not a fair number because yeah. that doesn't count the people who don't reply. Randall, a great journalist and now embarking on a wonderful new career to help you, Tons. Thank you for what you have stood for on so many levels in the community for so many years. It's... I, I need to thank you as well because you have, for years, I knew you back when you were a talk show host and on, what was it, K-Talk Radio? Hey, man. Yeah. With the bad radio voice at the time, but you sounded like a little kid. But what you've done is you have, you have enlightened our society by bringing out certain points that oh. the majority of people who live in Utah may not have been thinking about. And I think you've done a wonderful job doing that, both in the Senate, in your private life, and, and hopefully in your mayoral career as well. But I just, I, on behalf of people who are not necessarily saying liberals or Democrats, but on behalf of thinking people, thank you. Well, thank you so much. Randall Carlisle, pleasure having you. Thanks. This podcast produced by Van Garrett Media.